X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jeff Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, February the 19th. Today, back in the day, February 19th, 1942, Executive Order 9066 was signed. It authorized the internment of, quote, alien enemies, end quote, in concentration camps throughout the United States. The order was mostly enforced against Japanese Americans, as well as some German Americans and Italian Americans. Approximately 112,000 Japanese Americans were sent to camps, with the only evidence being their ethnicity. Many considered themselves loyal to the United States, and not a single Japanese person living in the United States was ever found guilty of sabotage or espionage. Those incarcerated were in their respective camps until 1944 when President Roosevelt suspended the order. And 34 years later, the proclamation finally terminated Order 9066 and formally apologized to those affected by internment. From 1990 to 1998, surviving internees received reparation payments. And February 19th is now recognized nationally as the Day of Remembrance. Today, back in the day, February 19, 1903, St. John's was incorporated as its own city. What we now know is the North Portland neighborhood was originally annexed by the city of Albina in February of 1891. By July of the same year, it was absorbed into the city of Portland. Residents of St. John's found that as a part of Portland, they were paying higher taxes for worse municipal services. In 1898, they convinced the Oregon legislature that they should be allowed to secede from Portland. And on February 19, 1903, St. John's was incorporated as its own city. Cityhood didn't seem to suit him. Four years later, efforts began to rejoin Portland. And finally, in 1915, St. John's voted to rejoin Portland. It has been part of our city ever since. February is Black History Month, and today we look at the life of jazz bassist Esperanza Spalding. Born in the King neighborhood in Northeast Portland in 1984, she began her music career at a young age, started playing violin for the Chamber Music Society of Oregon at the age of five. Spalding played several instruments before discovering the double bass at the Northwest Academy in downtown Portland. She got her GED, began attending Portland State University for music composition, eventually graduating from the Berklee College of Music. It's Berkeley with two E's, by the way, in Boston, Massachusetts, good music school, as distinct from our Pac-12 rival to the South. Spalding has released seven studio albums since 2006, won four Grammys, a Soul Train Music Award, and the Smithsonian Ingenuity Award. She's also a practicing Buddhist and a philanthropist. She performed a benefit concert back in 2008 for a housing and outreach nonprofit in Hillsborough, where her family now lives. Today, we have an interview with author Laura Spinney. Laura's book, Pale Rider, is focused on the Spanish flu and how our current experience compares with it. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Are you still out of power? PGE says they should have 90% of homes back on the grid by tonight. They brought in crews from as far away as Montana to deal with outages around Portland. A spokesperson for PGE said the storm caused some of the most dangerous conditions we have ever faced in the history of the company. Crews have been working around the clock since Saturday to bring back power online. Monday morning saw the most outages at once, with over 350,000 customers left in the dark. I like to think of them as people, not just customers, but, you know. If you assume that a customer is a household, because PGE wouldn't know how many people live in a given household. Might have been more than a half a million people without power. That's a lot. Some have questioned the relative readiness of public utilities versus private utilities like PGE and like those in Texas. PGE says they have been prioritizing public safety. And although PGE says 90% of us should have power by tonight, PGE doesn't know when the last 10% could be restored. Might be not just in a couple days. Hang tight, Portland. 
Hopefully, there is light, literally, at the end of this tunnel, figuratively. Now it's time for your daily dose of data. Yesterday, Oregon reported 466 new cases of the coronavirus. There were six new deaths, one of which was an infant. Our thoughts go out to the family. So far, 729,823 Oregonians have received the vaccination. Speaking of vaccines, Oregon is requiring health insurance to cover the costs of getting vaccinated. The federal government is shelling out for the doses, but healthcare providers still need to be paid for their time. A new mandate by the Oregon Health Authority says that private health insurers cannot charge patients for most costs related to providing the vaccine, including the cost of both doses, supplies, and administration expenses. Under the Affordable Care Act, commercial insurers are required to offer most vaccines to patients free of charge, regardless whether they've met their deductible. The Oregon Health Plan, which provides Medicaid to 1.26 million residents, and Medicare programs also do not charge patients for vaccination costs. The state is asking providers to directly bill insurance and not to burden patients with the price tag. The authority says Oregonians with questions about insurance coverage should contact their coordinated care organization, insurance company, or agent. The Oregon Employment Department is gearing up to fight fraud. The agency has begun to hire people for the unit that works with police and prosecutors to identify fraudulent unemployment claims. From March 15th of 2020 to this week, Oregon has paid out $7.6 billion in state and federal benefits. That's more than was paid during the entire previous decade. The state has gone through 650,000 claims for regular benefits from the state unemployment trust funds. About 70% of those have qualified for payment. For comparison, in 2019 to 2020, there were about 131,000 claims. The Employment Department has made this podcast a bunch of times over the past year as we all learned about their outdated computer systems. They say that fixing the problems prevented them from putting much effort into investigating fraudulent claims until now. This move comes as Congress is considering extending benefits again. A spokesman for OED, that's the Oregon Employment Department, says the CARES Act extended benefits without requiring extra verifications. Washington and California have both seen giant spikes in unemployment fraud. We're not alone. Hazelnut Grove continues to be the cause of much debate for the city council. The mayor's office announced this week that they will cut off the $1,500 a week currently used to help those living in the Hazelnut Grove homeless community. Hazelnut Grove has been the topic of much discussion for the city council lately as they try to figure out what is next for the community. The encampment is built on a hillside between North Greeley Avenue and Interstate. It's made up of a myriad of tiny houses and other structures. Currently, the city provides porta potties, running water, and garbage services to the community. The mayor announced that he will be ending those services and asking residents to relocate as soon as a new planned community in St. John's comes online. The St. John's Village is an intentional community that has been slated to open for months now, but the date keeps getting pushed back due to weather and other causes. It was constructed for the direct purpose of relocating the Hazelnut Grove community, but not all residents are willing to make the move. 
They say they enjoy the self-governance of Hazelnut Grove and are unwilling to endure the forced background checks required to move to St. John's. The mayor's office suggested that perhaps the Bureau of Transportation would be willing to pick up the tab for Hazelnut Grove as the community is on land owned by the Bureau. Commissioner Hardesty has pledged support for the community but says there is no money in the PBOT budget for such an expense. Meanwhile, Commissioner Dan Ryan has been meeting with members of the community and others to try to save Hazelnut Grove, but so far, no solution is forthcoming. Police have identified, sadly, the man whose car flew off the Glen Jackson Bridge on Sunday. Officials ended up using sonar to find the car. It was found to be practically underneath the bridge. On Thursday morning, divers pulled the body of Antonio Amaro Lopez out of the Columbia River. His car lost control in a patch of ice during the storm on Sunday. He plunged off the bridge. His family had been awaiting the news since they heard about the crash. Amaro Lopez left his restaurant in Hazel Dell around 5 p.m. Sunday evening and never returned home. U.S. Coast Guard told the family that crews went out to search within 15 minutes of the crash but had to suspend their search on Monday because of bad weather and tough water conditions. Finally, Thursday, the car and the body were recovered. There has been a GoFundMe set up for the Antonio Amaro Lopez family. And finally, some good news. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival is making plans for live performances. OSF's 2020 season was canceled due to COVID, but administrators say the 2021 season will happen. The season includes two new performances streaming on its website and five others that actors will perform in front of an audience. The live performances are slated to begin in the fall, depending on local regulations. OSF will continue the season into the winter this year, performing their first ever Christmas show. OSF is taking precautions as they prepare for a live season. Actors will have to practice their potential live performances in close proximity. Because of this, they will be doing twice-weekly coronavirus testing and keeping actors in isolated working groups. If one performer in a group gets sick, then the rest have to quarantine. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Big thanks to Julia Oppenheimer, the legendary one, for writing the news today. X-Ray. Now, we will hear from Laura Spinney, author of Pale Rider. Laura spoke with Christine Alexander about her book, which outlines how the Spanish flu impacted the world 100 years ago and how the pandemic compares with COVID-19. Here are Laura and Christine. Good morning. You're listening to X-Ray FM. I'm Christine Alexander. Joining us from Paris to talk about how the Spanish flu impacted the world 100 years ago and how the pandemic compares with COVID-19, British science journalist, novelist, and author of Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World, Laura Spinney. Good morning, Laura. I guess it's not morning for you. Can you hear me? Hello. Hi. Good. <laughs> That's okay. I'm getting a little bit of a delay, but um, what time is it there in Paris? It is half past five in the afternoon. Oh, nice. Gosh, I, I miss <laughs> Paris. I lived in Paris back in the 80s, and um, I imagine it's changed a lot since then, but uh, one of my favorite places well, in the world. It's pretty quiet at the moment. It's pretty quiet. We're looking at a, a third lockdown at the moment. So. Oh, oh, no. A third lockdown. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Well, because the, the, new, the, the, the new more transmissible variants are coming out very fast here through, uh, through the, the old ones. So 
there's not much choice, unfortunately. No. no, there isn't. Well, your book, Pale Rider, was published in 2017, and you knew another pandemic was in our future. The, the book cites a 2016 report by the Commission on Creating a Global Health Risk Framework for the Future that estimated a 20% chance of four or more epidemics occurring over the next 100 years. And I'm wondering, when COVID broke, were you thinking right on cue, or did you think, well, that was quick? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because public health experts um, are, are not surprised by this. You know, there, there have been an estimated 15 pandemics in the last 500 years, which works out roughly three every century. So, you know, as long as you remember, as you know your history, it's really not that surprising. Um, the only problem is that we're still not able, we don't have the scientific tools yet, at least, to be able to predict when exactly or where a new pandemic will declare itself. So the exact timing and place, and in fact, the actual disease that causes it, that is a little bit harder to tell. Well, could you give us a little breakdown? We've all been hearing a lot of comparisons to the Spanish flu and what happened in 1918. And I'm curious if you could give us a, a brief breakdown of how it started, what it was, and how it ended. Yeah, good question. So um, it started in the early months of 1918, so while the First World War was still raging. Um, the first official cases of it were recorded in the United States at a military base in Kansas. Um, but because virus was a new concept then, and there was no such thing as a, as a reliable diagnostic test, we don't know exactly where it started or when. It could have been early. In fact, it almost certainly was earlier, and it may not have been in America. In fact, there are, there are three theories that correspond to three different possible origins of that pandemic. One is in China, one is in America, not far from the base in Kansas, where it was actually reported. And the other is in France, where I am at a, a British military base uh, on the on the coast, on the um, just, just the part facing England, the, the Channel, um, just south of Boulogne-sur-Mer, we cannot actually, as I speak, choose between those three theories. So it struck the world in three waves: a relatively mild first wave, a very lethal second wave in the um, northern hemisphere, autumn of 1918, and then a third wave in the early months of 1919 that was kind of intermediate in severity between the other two. Um, the number of waves and the timing of the waves vary depending on where you are in the world. So the whole thing lasted probably about three years from the beginning of the first wave to the end of the last wave, uh, which was probably in the Pacific Isles, actually. Um, but the majority of the death uh, probably happened in, the, in relatively in the blink of an eye in the 13 weeks between the middle of September and the middle of December 1918. And the so-called Spanish flu it was huge. It was an illegal in its own. It's, it's, it was much, much, much bigger than COVID, even what COVID could be if we don't bring it under control with the vaccines. So it's thought to have infected one in three people on earth, roughly 500 million people, and to have killed between 50 and 100 million of them. Um, so you see, it's just in a different ballpark in, a, in an illegal of its own. Um, and you can think of it really as a pandemic that ran its natural course. There were public health measures, the sort of social distancing things we're using again now, um, but they weren't very effective even when they were put in place. Part of the problem was that the world was at war for some of that time and had different priorities. Um, and so you can think of it as one that kind of surged over the world and receded as it would if nobody had made any intervention at all, <laughs> unfortunately. 
Um, and the thing about a pandemic is that it will recede eventually, whatever we do. I mean, we can affect how quickly it recedes and how many casualties there are in the time that it's raging. Um, but it is, it's a sort of bell curve, if you can imagine it on a graph. It surges into the world and surges out again. And that has to do with factors like, you know, it kills the most fragile, it leaves some people immune. And so the pool of susceptible hosts just gradually shrinks. And the virus itself changes as well. It becomes one that, that lives more harmoniously with us, its host. Uh, and so it becomes generally more benign over time. And every flu strain that circulates in the world now once started as a pandemic strain and was far more vicious. So it's an evolutionary process as well. But yeah, um, probably you could say that the, the pandemic was officially gone from the planet uh, by the summer of 1921. I just find it fascinating that it just sort of uh, worked itself out, uh, you know, because that was the, one of the interesting things I learned in your book. And um, I don't think a lot of us think that way, that this could just sort of work itself out or uh, eventually do the bell curve and, and go away. Um, I think we are sort of in a panic about it from that standpoint. But also what I found fascinating was the, was the severity of the Spanish flu. And you say between 50 and 100 million people um, yeah. The greatest human disaster, you say, uh, not only of the 20th century, but possibly in all of recorded history. So the comparisons, yeah. the comparisons mm -hmm. between now and then are not necessarily that apt. However, when looking at it from just the standpoint of a pandemic, they are and how we react to the pandemic. Um, what I found fascinating also was some things that you've talked about um, in some articles that you've written for Unheard, and um, you talk about a couple of different things. One, the cost of vaccine nationalism, which mm -hmm. um, I found fascinating, and and that is the idea of that that certain countries are getting the vaccine, um, richer countries are getting the vaccine, and uh, um, we, our country just joined COVAX, which is a 92-nation vaccine collaboration that the Trump administration <laughs> declined to participate in, and Biden did this the day after his inauguration. So can you, can you talk a little bit about the, the, what you mentioned in the cost of vaccine nationalism and, and COVAX-19? Yeah. I think this is so fascinating because, you know, this, this, we have used vaccines before in a pandemic, but this is really uncharted territory in the sense that it's a pretty bad pandemic. Okay, it's not as bad as the Spanish flu. It's a new disease. It's it's not a disease that we know well like flu. And we're also dealing with new vaccine technologies. And just the logistical, I mean, first of all, you know, you have to start by saying the fact that we already have vaccines for this disease is quite incredible. Astonishing. And the scientific of the last year has been amazing. Let's not forget to say that. But now, rolling out such a vaccine is a vast logistical challenge. Um, and because of the number of people in the world, unprecedented. Um, it's difficult just on those terms. But now we're trying to do it in the middle of the pandemic. And the trouble is that um, we, we know this virus can change. We know that it can change in conditions of poor infection control. And in a way, because because you're varying the selective pressure on it. You're, 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 you're changing, it's, it, it, it's trying to survive like we're trying to survive. And if you roll out your vaccine in a patchy way, so some countries get protected very quickly, they have a fast rollout and others don't, 
that is that is kind of dangerous from a scientific point of view because you're varying the pressure on that virus to um, transform itself to try and beat the vaccine. So if we don't roll out the vaccine evenly across the world, we might be forcing it to form new, to create, generate new variants that can escape that very vaccine. So I've started with the reason why vaccine nationalism is a bad thing from a scientific point of view. Um, there's also, uh, maybe I should start with the definition, which is that I, I think you pretty much said it, but the, the rich countries are snaffling up the, the limited supplies and the poor countries are getting left at the bottom of the queue. That's basically it. And COVAX is an example of, of initiative which is trying to counter that um, because basically the idea is that everybody buys in, they put their money in and the vaccine gets um, delivered to everybody's country, but to the 20% the most vulnerable people in those countries. So we start by protecting the most vulnerable across the world, not just the most vulnerable in one country. And, and in that way, we're trying, to, we're trying to work towards that concept of even coverage. Um, but what I think that the rich countries who are totally ignoring this, and we in Europe are, have been behaving particularly badly on that front lately, <laughs> export bans the works, is, is that we, we don't seem to understand that, um, or to have taken on board that vaccine nationalism is only eventually gonna shoot us in the foot. It's self-defeating. Because if you drive these new variants, your vaccine risks not being protective in the end of anyone. Wow. Uh, my guest is Laura Spinney. She is a scientist, uh, a scientific journalist, a novelist, and author of Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Another article that I found that you wrote for Unheard, which is a website, um, and it's uh, Unheard as in Herd Immunity, H-E-R-D, and I, I think I, I'd never heard of this website before and um, was interested to find it. And on this website, you um, wrote an article, Why Don't We Remember These 100 Million Dead? And that was back in 2018. And the reason I bring this up is because recently I've heard debates over how to describe the death toll from COVID-19, uh, the comparison to the number of casualties in war. And, you know, oh, we lost this many in World War II or, and you had this fascinating article about comparing the memorials to victims of the Spanish flu to those who died in World War One, and in you in your book, you talk also about the fact that that um, the the Spanish flu was overshadowed by World War One, even though it was far more devastating. So, what do you think about talking about COVID nineteen and the fatalities in terms of war, and in mm. terms uh, of casualties that that equal that of war and are these victims not as um uh valuable yeah yes exactly it's yeah it's difficult yeah so um i think you touched on a really interesting and complex problem and i think the first thing to say is that we are not as human beings very good at getting our head around large numbers right so i mean large um, large numbers of deaths if you can't relate to those people in some way it's it's quite difficult to I don't know to, uh, to to relate to the scale of it somehow, or to or to to feel emotionally about it. Um, so how do we how do we do that? How do we put these things um, into human terms? And we always fall back on this, comparing it to other <laughs> deaths, other other great disasters. Um, and I think the reason that we always come back to wars is that because in general in history we remember wars better. 
And then you come to the thorny question of why? Why is a death from a war more memorable than a death from a from a pandemic? Are we saying that that death is more important or more glorious or more? And I think it it has to do with a lot of things. But one of the things I think is is to do with the way we tell stories. And the way we tell stories as human beings is we like to have heroes and villains. Uh, we ha- we like to have you know some kind of foe that has a face that we can relate to. We like a story that unfolds in a linear fashion and it has turning points and you know uh, declarations and truces and makes some kind of moral sense. And the pandemic doesn't do any of those things. It's got no heroes, no vi- well, it has got heroes, but they're not. There's no obvious villain. I suppose is the most obvious thing to say about it. And also, it doesn't unfold in a nice linear way. If you think about the Spanish flu. It was suddenly everywhere in the world and then it was gone. Uh, you know, it didn't really unfold in time, unlike the First World War, which lasted for four years and, uh, you know, had its turning points and its, uh, and its definitely its heroes and its villains. So I, I think there are reasons why wars are more memorable and therefore why we try and compare those deaths. Um, but the point about memorials is also fascinating because in France, where I live, which obviously we're sort of ground zero for a lot of the fighting in in the First World War, I think we have something like 135,000 memorials that were built to the fallen of the Great War. Um, And in my research, I was only able to find one (laughs) memorial to the Spanish flu. And it wasn't even, the one I found, I'm cheating slightly, because it wasn't even in strictly in France. It was in the Jura Mountains, which are between Switzerland and France, and it was on the Swiss side just. But this was a, a large plain stone cross, very elegant. And the interesting thing about it was it was the soldiers who died of the Spanish flu. So even there in the one memorial, there's this kind of confounding of the two things. Wow, that is fascinating. Well, I wonder what we'll see at the end of this pandemic and um, where we'll end up with that. Laura Spinney, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation. I appreciate your expertise and her book, Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Thank you for joining us from Paris and stay safe. My pleasure. You too. Big thanks to Julia Oppenheimer as the lead writer for today. Big thanks to Laura for joining the local. Special thanks to our production team, executive editor Will Romy the Extraordinary, supporting editors and writers Jonathan Cummington-Bram, Brian Miller, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Miranda Selinger, writer Sherwood, and Sam Smargiasi. Perma thanks to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland, and I'm Jeff. Thanks also to regional journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, Oregon Historical Society, COVID19.healthdata.org, Portland Mercury, Portland Tribune, Portland News Journal, KGW, Lambert Week Coin, KTU, Pamplin Media, OPB, The Oregonian, Statesman Journal, Bike Portland, News Partner Street Roots, and Eater Portland. Thank you for listening to Local, to your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving your five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you on Monday. That's right.